Once again, I would like for you to turn to Psalms 58, verses 3 and 4 this morning. We're talking about the subject, the poison of self. He said in verse 3, the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they be born, speaking lies. Their poison is like the poison of a serpent. Whether it's what they're saying that is poisoning, influencing, impairing, destroying other people, or whether the effect of their lives upon other people are having the same effect. That would be like what poison does when you put poison into something or spray poison on something. Poison impairs. It hinders, corrupts, destroys. And spiritually, poison causes us to be judged by the Lord and makes us less than useful to God. Poison does that to us. And the word self, the poison of self. As I said last week, this message won't mean anything. It's just another message with a lot of Christian words in it unless you understand what we're talking about when we refer to self. And when people say, well, what exactly is self? Well, self is what God made when he made Adam. He said he made Adam to be a living soul. And a living soul is a me. It's a you. It's a person. Self. Myself. And when you corrupt this self, you inject poison in it, and it becomes something that is less than what God wants. One of the reasons that we got saved is because of our sinful ways that we learned. But poison and self, whenever they're together, you have something that God not only has seen go from corruption. When he made Adam, he was perfect, and then Adam eventually became sinful. But the thing that became sinful was the choice that Adam made. When God made Adam, he made Adam a living being, a soul. This living soul is not capable of doing right or wrong. That is, it does not do right or wrong unless it is influenced. Myself is where my will, my intellect, or my mind, as a man thinketh in himself, remember Proverbs? which the Hebrew says, as a man thinketh in his soul, so he is. So whatever soul is, is where my mind, my thinking, my emotions, my process of evaluating and contemplating and meditating, everything is there. It's also where my will is. God made all of us to be willing. As I've said a thousand times, at least we're all ruled by that will. All of us are. There's nobody that isn't. We live by choices. Our choices will poison us and affect others, or our choices will draw us to God. Because there's only two ways that you can go with this. Either the devil or God, and that's it. There's no other way your soul, you, can be affected. This is you. You are affected either by the devil or you're affected by God. The choice is yours. God presents you life and peace and joy only on his terms. That's a hard choice. You have to really commit yourself to that choice to experience what he gives. On the other hand, 
everything in you that is of the world and natural and sensual, your flesh, your body over here, the devil uses that. He appeals to that. 1 John 2, 16, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, lust is wantonness. I want, I've got to have. And the devil gives you all the good reasons why you really need this. And oh, if you had this, you would be. Oh, if you would have this, you could be, wow. Everybody would notice you. You would be famous. You'd be strong. You'd be tough. You would be popular. You would be everything that makes self on the throne of his life instead of God. As Frank Sinatra saying, I did it my way. That's self. That's your flesh. It wants to rule. It wants to argue. It wants to defend itself. It wants to be cocky. It's ornery. It's what makes us not like each other. It causes us to have problems with each other. Makes us combative and contentious. Makes us difficult. That's what self does. But self wasn't made like this in the beginning. Self has to become like this. You become what you are because of the influence of the devil. He gives you something to think about. Again, 1 John 2, the lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, the pride of life. Jesus said, none of this is of the Father. You think of that. In this world today, look at all the people that are trying to be somebody, trying to be noticed, trying to be popular and on the stage of the world. The self-made millionaires write books on how they did it so that you will be like them and get what they have and drive what they drive. This is what corrupts us. This is what makes a young couple not get along eventually when they get married because of lust for things of this world. They go in debt way over their heads because something out there said, you can afford it. It's no big deal. $200 a month, that's it. No problem. You make that much in half a week. And you start thinking that way. You don't turn to God about whether or not it's the Lord's will and right now and how to do this his way. It's just, how can I get it? How can I get it? The clothes that people wear today is so much of it. So much of that is designed to get attention. And that attention translates into lust because it's revealing clothes. It's ornery. Not just girls, but boys too. I saw a young kid the other day. He wasn't very old at all, and he had his pants down halfway off, and his nasty shorts were showing. I mean, because, look, I want to be like everybody else. I want to act like the world acts. I want to be cool. That's self. And so many people are so deep into that kind of poison, they cannot get out of it. Because if they weren't this, they would just be a nobody. Surely God doesn't want us to be nobodies. Or did John the Baptist say he must increase, I must decrease. But here's the deal. If I don't decrease, he won't increase. Either what I'm doing is all about me or it's all about him. Either the way you live is all about you or it's all about him. Either the good choices that God has been giving you for 30 years to make, you're making them and you're becoming, well, a nobody in the world, waiting on God for whatever he wants. 
or you're taking matters into your own hands and making something out of yourself. Self is a destructive force in our lives because it makes us vain and it keeps God from blessing us. It's all because of this word lust. It's this design of the devil to get your mind off of God and his way to get and have and to be. Turn to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, look at verse 14 and 15. Because this is how it works. This is how any of us, all of us, whoever, this is how you get in trouble spiritually. This is the way it works. If you don't hear anything else this morning, hear this. This next five minutes, just listen to this. James chapter 1 and verse 14. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away. Now, not everybody who is tempted is drawn away. But when a man's temptation draws him away, away from what? Away from God. It happens to Christians all the time. I've been fussing for a long time because it happens in here. We get drawn away. Here is the way, walking in it, but somebody says, let me draw them away because if I can draw them away, I'll take the grace out of their life. I'll take the power and the presence out of their life, and then they're going to start struggling and wondering, ain't fair, why don't I get mine? And they'll start acting that way and not realize it's because you've been drawn away. Listen to it. A man is tempted when he is drawn away of what? His own lust and enticed. The word enticed has to do with the trigger on a bait. You know, you've set a trap and it's got a little trigger. When that animal you're trying to trap gets that trigger to work, then the animal's trapped. It's the word for entrapment. And a man is drawn away and brought into a trap or bondage when he is tempted to want something he shouldn't get the way he's trying to get it or shouldn't have it at all if it's another woman. And he's drawn away and he's enticed and he's tempted. And notice verse 15. And when lust hath conceived, it's planted. And when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And when sin is finished, let me ask you all something. Does sin do a work? In other words, because it says when it is finished, it means there is a process that when sin comes in and this door in your life is open, things begin to happen in your life that take you down a road to judgment. Now, unless somebody tells you this and points it out, you may never see it. You may sit in a happy church your whole life and hope for the best and never see that the way you're going, the attitude you have, the character of your life is warped. It's all because of sin, but sin came because of self. Adam could not just sin. He had to be tempted. Adam could not just be saved. God had to save him. But Adam has to make a choice. We choose stuff in our lives that the little seed of sin, like a conception, the little seed was planted, and it grows, and it gives birth to death. This is the way it works. And when lust has conceived, it brings forth sin. And when sin is finished, it brings forth death. Now, that's what God in his word 
says about the temptation of our flesh, the effect the devil has on our lives, especially if we're not paying attention. We just navigate through life wanting new things and different things. There's nothing wrong with wanting something. A lot of people need a new this, needed one of them, or like to go on a vacation. There's nothing wrong with that. Sometimes it's just wrong in the way you try to do it, in the methods you employ to do that. But God wants us to know that lust, the lust of the eyes, the lust of your flesh, the pride of life is not of the Father, but it's of the devil. It is the effect of sin. And when this process is finished, James talks about, when this process is finished, you die. Now, the only hope you have while you are dead in trespasses and sins, you're not physically dead, but you're spiritually dead. Once you turn to the devil, you cancel out God. And a darkness settles into your life. And you're like Luke wrote in the book of Acts. These are people without God and without life. God is life. And you hath he quickened. Paul wrote in Ephesians 2. You hath he quickened, made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins. Only God can do that. But he does that because you got convicted. He's the one that convicts you, and you know the story. I pray you do. You were sitting in one day. We're sitting, writing, listening, reading. And you got convicted about your life and about the choices you're making, the way you've been living all this time. You're not happy. You're not at peace. Drugs didn't make you anything except miserable because God will not allow a man that lives like that to have peace in his life. He won't allow it. He can alter his conscience for a while and think he's Superman or Superwoman. But you always come back to earth, and it's always a bad scene when you come back to earth because God will not allow wickedness to have peace in his life. And so no man who gained the whole world and you lose your soul, you're still an unhappy soul. Rich people are not happy. Famous people aren't happy. Those that are aspired to be great and beautiful and they got that, they're not happy. They can't stay married. They can't keep friends. They're just aggravating people. They're warped on the inside. They're selfish. They're self-centered. They're self-serving. They're conceited. They're heady. They're high-minded. They think they are somebody when they're not. They are in their own estimation of themselves above everybody else. And if you don't bow to that and honor that, then they're all over you. Harsh, difficult people, selfish people. They're full of poison, and the way they are is the effect of poison in their life. They're good for nothing as far as the kingdom of God is concerned. They can't be used because they give up easy. You can't send them anywhere. If things get tough, they'll quit because self has already measured how far it's willing to go in life and how much it's willing to put up with. That's why people divorce. I'm not going to work it out. I've been offended so bad, I'm not going to try to fix any of it because I'm wounded. It's yourself. It's this soulish part of you. Soulish. There was a horrible song when I first got saved by the Mountain Valley Boys. It said, Jesus is a soul man, which they meant Jesus is cool. 
Jesus is a soul man. I remember first we used to sing around like that, and then I got to thinking about studying it. You thinking Jesus is a soul man? Jesus is a self-centered person? Is Jesus carnal? Well, no, then the song's wrong. It's popular because people don't know what you're talking about. And when you tell somebody who's supposed to know something that what you're saying is wrong, they get offended because self only can be offended. The only thing in any of us the devil can use to corrupt us is self. That's the only thing he's got. This little avenue right here, what the devil can influence you to choose and the effect of that choice is the only way the devil can affect you. And anything the devil injects into your life, anything he promotes in your life is poison. And when he poisons you, he'll poison other people around you. He'll poison your children. He'll poison your friends. He'll poison you. We looked last week at how religious poison has mastered churches, put them to sleep. The preachers are like dumb dogs that cannot bark because self says, well, these people won't like me if I warn them or she won't like me if I correct her or he might not come back or give if I say something about that and therefore to keep peace and quiet here, I just won't say anything about anybody. We'll just talk about being saved every week. That surely wouldn't offend anybody. And the people die because of the poison that came from all places from a pulpit. He said that, remember Jeremiah 23, 16, he said, the prophets who prophesy to you make you vain, useless. All you can do is sit in a religious setting once, twice a week, listen to the words and go your own way. Like Jeremiah said, the people assemble before you as one who sings a lovely song. And, and so he said, they hear your words. He said, but they will not do them. And Jeremiah said, what will they do in the end? Because that's religion. Been poisoned. Poisoned movements. When we have taken out of it the antidote to all of our sinful ways and all the way we can be corrected and healed, we have withdrawn from that because people quit coming. Our groups get smaller, the less money coming in. And the root of all evil is the love of what? Money. And you'd be surprised what a man will do for money. Well, you wouldn't. God himself said when he influences you to set your affection on things above and not on things beneath. Affections are passions. They come from here also. Your soul is where that is. God says, set your affections on me. And for those who get saved, those that are truly born again, they turn away from this and they turn to God. And the rest of your natural life as a Christian is spent overcoming and crucifying your flesh with its affections and the lust thereof. And that's the way you live. Now, let's talk about the antidote this morning to self, the poison. You know, an antidote is a remedy to counteract the effects of poison. What is the antidote for 
the poison of self. Well, go back to Matthew 16. Let's begin there again. We were there once. Let's go back there and brief that. Then I want to list five or six things in particular that are a good antidote if you're a selfish, self-centered, self-serving person. How many of you know the only way two of us can fight if it's one of us is willing to? Now, what if two people are unwilling to fight because that's not the way God wants us to settle matters? Then we don't fight, do we? We may disagree, but we don't fight. Because everything in me that recoils at somebody's statement, if it's true, boy, I just, Lord, forgive me. Is it possible that somebody could speak the truth to you in love about a matter in your life that you don't want anybody talking about, but they'd be right? What if somebody said to you, Thomas, you talk too much and you talk too loud. You're irritable. Now, let's say you do. We don't spend a lot of time together, do we? Not much. Okay, so I don't know if it's true or not. If it is, I didn't know it. <laughs> Your daddy never told me, all right? But let's say you're the kind of guy that just talks too much, talks loud, because when you talk loud, people notice you. Hey, how you doing? Some people talk loud for that. Hey, what's going on, man? You can't just say, hey, how you doing? Because nobody would notice you. Let's say you talk too much. But we can't even have a conversation, the three of us, because you keep dominating the conversation. Blah, 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 blah. What if I said, Thomas, that's not good? And you said, well, I guess you think you're perfect. Now, see, he's poisoned. Did I speak the truth to him? Did I say it in a good way? Thomas, you talk too much. Let's say I did. Play like I did. I said that to him. Now, if he is offended by the truth, why is he offended? He's poisoned. He's a self-centered person. He doesn't want to be corrected because as far as he's concerned, he has more to say than you do. He can say it better than you can. You need to listen to him, and who are you to tell him anything? Now, I know you're not like that, so I could use you. But is it true with anybody you know? How many people never get fixed, corrected, or convicted because they are never located. How many times has a wife wanted to go to her husband and say whatever she's got to say? And she does not. Why? Because she knows if she says that, he will go through the roof. So she says, but is what I'm saying in my nice feminine husband, husband, he just doesn't want any woman to tell him anything because women are a lower grade of humanity than he is, and who is a woman to tell me? And after all, I know when I'm above. And she can't talk to her husband. They can't fix this part of their marriage because there's poison in the system. But one day she's inspired the Lord. She says, honey, if she can still call him out, honey, in the south, honey, honey, darling, can I talk to you about something, something about you that really bothers me that I think you need to think about? Sure, why not? Well, I wish you'd brush your teeth. <laughs> now, he looks in the mirror and he said, I did last month. <laughs> and you know I'm making this up. 
But instead of him saying, is it offensive? She says, yes, it is. I just wish you would do something about it because I think it's to your advantage to do that. If he's a spiritual man, he'll probably say, okay, thanks for telling me. If he's not a spiritual man, but he is selfish, self-centered, he will probably say, look, you brush your teeth, I'll brush mine. Okay. Huh. What are you now, my mother? My wife. She thinks she's my mother. How many of you know nothing this man's ever heard in church? Not any verse or sentence of the gospel has ever affected this part of his life. Because he's sitting there in the church, everything he hears is somebody else's word, not his. Oh, I go to church. I've been a preacher for so many years. I go to church. I pray in the morning and all that. So what he's talking about, about ugly ways in people's lives, he's not talking about me because I'm not like that. But he is like that, isn't he? He's like that because he said he's not like that. He's sinful. If God sends him somewhere and somebody he doesn't know corrects him, then he might fall apart or she might. What happens to a woman if the husband says, you know, you're, uh, you've been eating pretty good here lately. You better be anointed. <laughs> and don't go pinching that part right back here where all of it settles. Don't do that either. Because that is almost a war because that's one of the things the devil guards very carefully. <laughs> don't you talk about my body or my face. Because if you do, I'll remind you of your body and your face. Come on. Nothing gets fixed. You learn what you got to motor around in people's lives. And we just simply remain as we've always been, the kind of person that when people say, well, when you're around him, you don't, man, be careful what you say around him because he, they, he flies off the handle easy because he's selfish. Do you think God can use that man? If a man cannot overcome his anger, what does he overcome? He overcomes what he wants to, not what he should. And the reason he doesn't overcome some things is because everybody's afraid to talk about it. So they leave it to the preacher. I don't mind. I don't mind. You see, if a man isn't going to overcome, is he going to heaven? If you refrain in this Christian life with all the things this Bible says, if you explain all of that away, you excuse yourself, dismiss yourself, and all that because, you know, you've been taught you don't have to do anything. Maybe, you know, you started out life where all you got to do is raise your hand and nothing else matters. So you never deal with anything about yourself. You never deal with yourself. What's going to happen to you in Judgment Day? Are you going to stand there and say, I bet my name's in that book. And he might say, uh, I don't see your name in here. Angel, is his name in the book? No. I do see here some instances where I spoke to you on all these dates. And you explained it all away. It wasn't you I was talking to, somebody else. Therefore, you're going to have to depart from me, you worker. Listen. Worker, a doer of iniquity. That's selfish, self-serving. An iniquitous person is a lawless person. They're a law unto themselves. And this is a major problem in Christianity, is people are selfish. The husband tells the wife, you know, I really don't want you 
talking to that one or doing this or dressing our kids like that or buying that kind of toy for our kids. And the wife is hugely offended because she bought all that stuff. It's not like she didn't know better. She probably did, but, you know, it's the kids. It's a lust for having my kids be where everybody else's kids are, which is lost. And she can't see that the husband's word, and he's the head of his house, unless you don't want him to be, and then he isn't. And he gives you things that he wants you to know, and you're offended by it. How can a marriage be good? How can God bless a marriage in which you can't even deal with things? And nobody's perfect. We all know that. But a little piece of truth is perfect. It's a perfect truth. It has a perfect place in a person's life to do a perfecting work in some area of your life. When the Bible says, be not fashioned according to this world, you know, when they're building a big building, they lay a schematic drawing down. You know what a schematic is? All them little blue lines all over there, and he tells you the dimensions and the sizes. This is a big schematic. We're going to build a building and a house here. So, okay, we look at this schematic. Here's what we go. Well, the Bible says, be not schematized. Uh, schematized. We're not to be built like the world, but we are to be transformed, made into a different creature. Metamorphosis. We are to made in a different creature by one thing, by the renewing of our mind. So that the old things die and the new things live. But it's a choice. It is a will. It's in your soulish area. It's in the area of soul. When God captures a will, God has captured you. When God has your will, God has your heart. When God has your will, he has your life, and it pleases him to manifest himself in that life. He brings grace and favor to you and your family. It's very simple, but it's profound in the difficulty that people have in working through all of this. Too many people are poisoned. I pastored a church way too long to know that some things cannot be dealt with. The poison is so deep and so full in some people's lives, you can't help them. I can't pastor everybody. I'm learning that more and more. No matter what you preach, they do something else. Because something in these people disregards the word of God and you. And you can't do anything about it. Have you found Matthew 16 and verse 23 through 26? Again, now we've been here once. We don't need to spend a lot of time here, but just to refresh you. Jesus turns to Peter and he says unto him, now get this point, get thee behind me, Satan, thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of man. Now the word offense comes from the Greek word scandalon. We get our word scandal, scandalized from it, but in this place, it always denotes an enticement to conduct, which is what a scandal is, adverse, bad conduct. It's an enticement to conduct which can ruin the person who is in question. That's what this word scandalon means. And he says to him, he said, you are an offense to God. You're offensive. Was Peter one of the main apostles? You better say yes. He was an apostle. Amen. 
in the verse before that, he simply said, Lord, this shall not be. Oh, no, you're not going to. No, this isn't going to happen to you. See, we don't want you to be away from us. We want you to stay with us all the time. We like what we see. We like the benefits we're getting from you. We're blessed. We see wonderful things happen. We're walking with a, a very unique crowd on this earth. There's only 12 of us and you, and there's nobody else like that little group in all the world. And we like this. No, don't go anywhere. And Jesus said, you're an offense to me because what you just said is the way the devil works in people. It's not God's way. It's how you figure out the way you think it should be, and that's the way it ought to be, and anything else is just not right. Jesus said, get thee behind me, Satan. He said, you are an offense to me. This is what warps human behavior. It's the influence of the devil to do things that you think ought to be done rather than what God said must be done, and we do that way. He said, you savor not the things of God. The word savor means to have a mind for. You kicked out the stuff you don't want to have to be. You don't want God's way of, for example, oh, no man, anything. And how are you going to have anything if you don't, the devil says. That's just poison. How are you ever going to own, have anything if you don't go in? Now, you tell me how. There's no way in life you can do it. I thought of that once. I thought, well, if there isn't, then I won't. But I believe there is, so I'm waiting on it. And he did it. But the devil's always telling you what you can't do and what you shouldn't have, especially when it interferes with your life. You don't want to have a mindset to have to wait on God and do it the way that people are going to criticize you for it, talk about you, speak ugly things about you, that church. Oh, you're going to get persecuted. Oh, I, why should somebody as nice as me be persecuted for believing the gospel? Because you're believing it in a vile world. The world lies in darkness. And people are walking around in the dark. They stumble around. They don't mind doing that. But you are lights in the world. Your light is a revelation to a lot of people. What's wrong with them? They don't want you around them talking about your Jesus. They are poisoned by the systems of this world. They're polluted by the world. They're corrupted by the world. They live for the world. All the enticements of the world, they are lusting after because they want to be like what they see on the screen. They want to dress like what they see cool kids dressing like. And they never consider, what does God say about all of this? And when you tell them what God says on Sunday, it just bursts all their dreams. Huh, I don't guess we can have anything anymore, can we? I guess we just have to sit here and do without. Is that what he said? Is that what you were taught? Do you think doing things God's way, if you ask God for an egg, he gives you a serpent or a stone? Who do you think you're serving? You think God doesn't know what your needs are? You think God doesn't care about your situations in your life, your work, your job, your home, your body? You think he doesn't care about all of that? You think he's drawn you into his word so he can believe this word so he can let you down? The devil taught you that, not God. The devil makes everything gloomy. Oh, you're too young to have to give up such a robust, lovely life to live like that. Oh, go ahead and wear that tonight. That's really cute. That's really cute on you. 
don't wear that old thing. And you just begin to make the right choices. Your affections are no longer what does the world think and do I have the approval of my friends? But my affection begins to be set on the Lord and I think, do I have the approval of God? Or is my husband happy with me? Is my wife pleased that I'm her husband? Is it easy to submit to me? Do I make it easy for her to submit to me? Does she make it easy for me to really want to love her all out? Is she the open and loving kind of person? Am I the honoring, wife-honoring kind of man that she was hoping I would be when we married? Anything else, anything else is self. That's why we are offensive to each other and to God itself. Flesh, soulishness, carnality. To be carnally minded, Romans 8 says, is death. You can't live carnal. You can't act carnal. We can't be carnal and expect to walk through heaven's gates and have God say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. You weren't faithful. You'll be well done, but you were not faithful. To me, this is so clear and so simple. It's the devil who wants to entice us, to seduce us, to mislead us, to distort us, to turn us away, to draw us away so that he can make us fit for judgment so that death is lodged in our hearts. That's poison. And when that gets in your heart and you don't know any better, your philosophy is what poisons other people. Well, this is how I see it. And young, impressionable minds, because you're such a nice person, advanced in your studies, you must be right. And you're poisoning more people. Because we're ruling out the influence of God in all of it. Self is a horrible thing when you begin to see what kind of a monster it really is in the eyes of God. Because so long as a person's walking in his flesh, God cannot use that person. There may be some good things going on, of course. There isn't all of us. We're not perfect yet. But this stuff that resists God in our lives, if I might say it, this folding of the arms and refusal to get involved like in worship and praise, you know, that is your flesh. That is all. It is your flesh. It is your way of saying, I don't want to. And you know, if I don't want to, I, I'm not going to. I don't want to be a hypocrite. And so... The only way you ever worship is if you really feel into worship. And you never consider that worship is often a sacrifice of praise. It's not like you really want to do it, but he deserves it. You tell your body or you tell your, your flesh, hey, get those hands up. Open that mouth or I'll put you in a cold shower when I get home. Open that mouth, let's go. We're only going to sing a little bit. Let it go. Worship God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. That's what God said. You can do that. You can resist the devil. Go on in Matthew 16, verse 24. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, in light of savoring and, and offense, in light of that, he said, if any man will come after me, whoever you are in this room, if you're willing to come after the Lord, here's three things you got to do. You got to deny yourself. We're not talking about self-denial. We're talking about denial of self. 
Self-denial would mean, well, I'm going to fast this week or I'm going to go on a diet. I'm not going to give up my ugly behavior. I'm not going to crucify. I'm just going to do things that I think would make me better to do the things I want to do. Denial of self. You see denial of self in explanation in what Peter did to Jesus. Did Peter deny Jesus? Utterly. The word deny means utterly deny. I don't know him. You were with him. We saw, I blankety blank don't know him. I ain't a part of that. Can you imagine? He did. Or the word deny can also be seen when Jesus said, and I think it's in Luke 12, if you deny me before men, now he said this. I don't care if you're a Baptist or what you are. This is what he said. If you deny me before men, I will deny you before my heavenly father. That means I never knew you. Depart from me. So deny means to literally to disown, to not acknowledge. It's putting your lamp, your light under a bushel so that nobody will persecute you as being one of them. Except you may not use curse words as Peter did, but you still don't want anybody to know that you're a Christian because they'll persecute you. They're supposed to. That's what Jesus said they're going to do. And secondly, the cross. I don't know any other way for self to die except the cross. We call it dying out to self, crucifying the flesh with the affections and lust thereof. If you will briefly turn to Galatians 5. You need to see this. You might want to underline it or at least underline it in your friend's Bible. Galatians 5, look at verse 16. Verse 16 says, This I say, then walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill what? Now, the temptation will come. Your flesh is designed to lust. But he says, walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For, in verse 17, the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these two are contrary, the one to the other, so that the things that you want to do, you can't do that because the spirit of God may not want you to do that. Verse 24. And they that are Christ, now you measure yourself with this verse. They that belong to Jesus, they that are Christ, have what? Y'all see it? Let me read it now. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections, and the lust. They have. Where do you crucify the flesh? Well, in this spiritual picture, it's on a cross. A cross is a place of death. It is a place of dying. The purpose of a cross in the days of Jesus was to die on. You put criminals in really the worst cases, you crucified them on the flesh. They died slow. They died long. They were mocked at, spat at. When Bonnie and I were in Israel, the, the guide was trying to tell us we were at Golgotha, the, where he was crucified, and we sat in this little place and looked at that hill where it looks like the skull is and look, is right there. Not very big, just a little place that's right there. And he said, but I suspicion that he was crucified down by the road. Because when you look from Golgotha, you look over into Jerusalem. There's a, the Temple Mountain, here's a wall, and 
right over here is the Mount of Olives. They think that he was crucified down by the road where the travelers walked, and they walked by and spit on you and everything else. Of course, I'm sitting there thinking that he might be right. How would I know? I wasn't there. But the only problem I have, he said the cross is about six feet high, so he was hanging, you know, about the same height everybody else was so they could spew their venom on him. And I thought, well, then why did they ask to put that vinegar on a pole and lift it up on that pole to Jesus if he was just six feet tall? Unless they were little bitty people or something, you know. <laughs> so I don't know where he was crucified or don't know the exact place. It doesn't matter. I just know he was. And I know that the cross was for that purpose. And in your life, Jesus intended for us to understand that the things that are offensive to him, those characteristics in our life, things that are offensive to God, are things that you have to crucify. You have to put these things to death. Nobody can do this for you. You must recognize your own shortcomings. You must see those yourself and deal with it. And the way you deal with it is a cross. Peter wrote this, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as a stranger and as pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust, which war against the soul. It's the soul in the end that is saved. It's the soul that is lost. The soul is lost because of the absence of God. The soul is saved because of the lordship of our Lord and the crucifixion of your flesh. The old ways have to die so that the new way that God gives can come. There is no other way. The ground is level here for everybody in this room. There is no other way. It's his way and there's no other way. And his way is if you're loyal, if you're committed to me, crucify your flesh. If you want to follow me, you got to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. There's no other way. You can't do it. Romans 13, verse 14, it says, but put you on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provisions for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 5 says, and that he died for all and they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves but unto him which died for them and rose again. This is what we do. As the song used to sing when I was in a quartet a hundred years ago, I once was lost in sin. I forget all the words of this song, but my Savior, you know, it saved me. And I've turned away from my sins, and he saved my soul. It's a simple story. It's pretty involved, but it's a simple story. You're lost, you're in your sins. The devil has become your master. Listen to this. Know ye not, Romans 6, 16. Know ye not that to whom you yield yourselves, servants, you are the servants of that person whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or of righteousness unto life. But you will serve one or the other, all of us, everybody in this room. You will serve one or the other. You will either serve God or serve the devil. God's reasons will astound you, convict you, and you'll yield to that, or you have a better idea. There is a way that seems right unto man, but it's a way of death, isn't it? Second thing, not only Matthew 16 and those three things here, but 
You want to really get an antidote and get free from self? Let me make this number one. Number one, recognition and admittance of your selfishness. Are you willing to admit, at least in those areas that are clearly defined in your life, that you're selfish? That you fly off the handle easy about certain things? That you're really sensitive about certain things? That you're self-serving, self-righteous, or if you're well-to-do, self-sufficient? You can never get fixed until you admit you got a problem. Are you willing to admit that in many ways you are a self-centered, self-serving person? Does it ever bother you because of these weaknesses in your life that have been poisoned by the world, which resists God and make you the way you are? You have to admit it. Recognize your fleshly selfishness and say, it is my fault, I am wrong, and God is right. You remember the words in James chapter 5, it says, confess your what one to another? James 5 verse 16, confess your faults one to another that you may be healed, cured, delivered, saved. Confess your faults. Hide nothing in your life. When God wants to deal with you about your selfish ways, don't defend yourself. Open your closet. Cleanse me, Lord. You ever prayed that? Cleanse me. Turn your light on my life and whatever in here needs to be dealt with, deal with it. Wouldn't you this morning like to be able to stand before anybody and say, I have nothing to hide? I have no secret sins. I have no things I do when I'm alone that I would be ashamed for people to see. I keep my body clean. I keep my mind pure. I rule self. I yield to God and I command myself, you will not do that. You're not going there. We're not going to do that. God's in control. Secondly, repent. You admit you got a problem, now repent of it. Now, repentance doesn't always work because people often repent as a matter of duty. Well, you're supposed to say you're sorry. That's good. But repentance has to come from the heart. There has to be a repentance that is so deep that you're unwilling to return to what you repented of. If you're repenting of some arid areas in your personality, it means you recognize it. God shows you that they are. They're offensive to him, and you repent of it with the idea that I'm not coming back. I don't want to be like that no more. To repent is to turn from your sins and to dedicate yourself unto God and his way and all that he wants. It's a change of your mind from things that were bad to things that are right. Only you can do that. And the only way you can truly repent is when God convicts you. Sometimes you weep and you cry because you become disgusted with yourself and you become ashamed of yourself. You ever been there? Have any of you ever been there in your whole life? 
Every time I think of this, I go back to the morning I got saved. You've heard this before. Allow me one more time, holding on to my pew, feeling so ashamed of all these years in my life I had lived like a worthless scumbag, vile and ugly and vulgar, nasty, but did all of that to attract attention. I guess I was insecure, which is poison. I don't have to be insecure. And then there that morning, there was God who says, in light of all of this, I will forgive you. The whole thing. He looks at you and there's nothing between you and him, no sin. A whole lot of self. You don't know what it is yet. All you know is you've been forgiven. And God says, now, you and I need to go to school. And I'm the teacher. A change has to take place, and I don't change. So you're going to have to change. You're not going to like this, but you're going to love it at the end because I'm going to say, well done. I made heaven for people like this. It's worth it. And we make it. Thirdly is humility. This is probably one of the hardest things for people to do is to humble themselves, to shut your mouth, downcast your eyes, quit boasting, quit telling everybody how much you know and how famous you are and how advanced you are, how cool you are, how tough and fast and big. Quit telling everybody all these things that advance yourself. Learn to be still. Put your hand over your mouth and guard your mouth so that you don't sin against God. Philippians 2, 3 says, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but he said, in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others as better than yourself. That guy in front of you, that woman behind you, the people across the aisle, are you able to say, I am less than they are? I esteem them as better. How could you serve if you didn't? How could you truly be a servant to each other to submit yourselves to one another in the fear of the Lord if you did not, first of all, have this esteem that you are less than other people? You should serve. That you're not really such a good speaker, preacher, anything else you're supposed to be doing. You're really not as good as you think you are. You're not half as good as people say you are because in the eyes of God, you're a project that needs to be refined. And if it's good and wonderful, it doesn't need to be fixed. God says, but it's not good and wonderful. And it needs to be fixed. I'm going to melt this thing down as a refiner. Didn't he say he's still a refiner's fire? I'm going to melt you down until the only thing left is what I can see of me. You've got to be willing to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due season. You want grace in your life? You want the presence of God in your life? Listen to this verse. In Isaiah chapter 57 and verse 15, for thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. He says, I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit. That's who God deals with and dwells with. That's who God fellowships with. Him that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble, because sometimes you really do feel like you're less than the dirt of this earth. You really don't have all that you thought you had, and God does have to revive you. He says, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to. What ought I? Well, you're a child of the king, aren't you? Your name's written in the Lamb's Book of Life, aren't you? You didn't deserve for it to be put there, and you couldn't put it there. He put it there because he wanted it there. You didn't do it. 
Therefore, he's altogether God. And when you've done all the things you're supposed to do, you're still an unprofitable servant. Doesn't it say that? Then bow your head before God and let God be God and recognize him as God. Jonathan Edwards said, true humility is not an abject, groveling, self-despising spirit, but it is a right estimate of ourselves as God sees us. Because next Sunday is a communion Sunday, I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians 11. I want you to see something about humility and a lack of it and what happens when people are proud and cocky and arrogant in the church. 1 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 18. Well, first of all, when you come together in the church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I partly believe it. Now, he said that also in chapter 1 and chapter 3 of this book. For there must also be heresies among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. He said, when you come together into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. It's not the agape feast. For in eating, every one taketh before the other his own supper. And when one is hungry, another is drunken. What? Don't you have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise yet the church of God and shame them which have not? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. The church comes together. It came from various parts of Corinth, of the city, a large city. No big buildings to have them all together in one place. They had house meetings, house groups. They meet together in homes. Not big houses, so they're small groups. And all these groups come together ever so often to, for the big Lord's feast. He said, I don't praise you for coming together to do something like this. Look at you. You got group A over here, which doesn't care anything about group B. You got group C and you got group D from that quarter, this quarter, that's part of town, this part of town. I'm of Apollos, I'm of Peter. Well, these are of Christ, and this one over here is of somebody. And you all don't talk to each other. You don't get along with each other. Should I praise you for this? This is not what the Lord is doing. Would that church be offended at that? Probably. They were selfish people, self-serving. They're not going to bow themselves down to each other because they are above everybody else. Well, listen to this. He goes on in verse 23. He talks about the Lord's Supper and the night that the Lord was betrayed. He took bread and broke it, and he said this, he said that. Notice, get the picture. We go from the church coming together as one group. Because earlier in this, I think chapter 10, he talks about Christ as one loaf. So he said, now here you all coming together, this one big loaf, the bread that, this is God's bread. And he brings you together, and you're so divided and cut up, you have nothing to do with each other. He said, now the Lord, the night that he was betrayed, he had his disciples there. He took that loaf and he broke it and he gave each one of them a part of it. And they ate it. He said, you all have an equal share in me. Nobody is above anybody. A same loaf of bread, same flavor to all of us. And he goes on after that, verse 27. Having said the communion verses, he says in verse 27, wherefore, in light of that, Whoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily, that's referring to other people, unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself. Let a man examine himself and see. 
And so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. Now, the word examine, one translation says that if you would see yourself as God sees you, this examination, if you would see yourself as God sees you, and you would not compromise yourself, but you would reach a verdict against self, you would not cause God to have to judge you. He might go on and say that down here. Verse 30, for this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and some sleep. Or if you would judge yourself, you would not be judged. If you and I would judge ourselves in light of what we're a part of and what God is doing and how we fit into this and with each other, if I would have an honest evaluation of myself in concert with what God shows me, and I wouldn't compromise that and say, God is right and I'm wrong. My attitude's not real good here. I'm not doing well. I'm wrong and you would surrender to God's way, you would not cause God to reach a verdict against you. He said, for this cause, many are weak and sickly, and some have died in a church with all the gifts. And sometimes they don't work. They don't work because of something that interferes, and that's the devil. That poison gets between you and God. But he said, when we are judged, verse 32, we are chastened by the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world because if we don't change, we'll be condemned. Now in closing, the last point, discipline, self-discipline. Start your day out every day. If you do it for 30 days in a row, you'll probably do it the rest of your life. Read your Bible. Discipline yourself every day to read. Pray about something. You can pray for your country and pray for Israel. Pray for the government here. Pray for the Knesset there that God would confound the enemies of Israel, that our borders would be saved, that they would never come together in unity and purpose against Israel, that God would give them the upper hand and have them see things they need to see in order to protect their country, that God would bless our government, our president, to have his eyes opened, to be interfered with by heaven so that he won't make bad decisions. And as long as the church is here, I ask in Jesus' name, you would prevent us from laws that would harm our work on this earth. I prayed that in, what, 60 seconds? And read your Bible every morning, read something. I happen to have a book called Spurgeon's Devotional Bible. And every day I read morning and evening parts because I don't always read in the evening, but I read them both in the morning. I can't tell you how many nuggets of truth you keep getting out of there and things to think about, things to think about. Convictions or things to think about. Wow, that's good. I need to do that. Lord... Put somebody in my path today. Every day, start disciplining yourself to get your mind off of you and how big and great you are unto him and what simple thing he wants his servant, you, to do today. Discipline yourself and then pray. And fifthly, overcome. Put it to work. Next time that talk show comes on and somebody rises up and starts talking against, and I apologize for the Democrat comments. They start talking against, you know, Democrats are real liberal in their voting, and Republicans are just ornery as snakes in their attitudes against Democrats. Include myself in that, because I listen to that stuff too much. I quit listening to it. I hear it every now and then, but I don't listen to it. I don't want to know what's wrong with everybody else. I know what's right with the kingdom of God. I want to know what's wrong with me. 
Because I can fix that. But I can't fix anything else. Now, is there any poison in your life this morning? Anything that God convicts you about? Bow your head. Lord, I do know that you have spoken to your people. I do know that we have labored this morning in the word. I do know that. I do know that. And I know that there's nobody in this room that can't be fixed. There's nobody in this room that's too far gone. There's nobody's sin is too deep. At least not today. At least not today. You have said in the Bible that your eyes roam to and fro throughout the whole earth looking for a perfect heart. And in that heart, you said you would manifest your strength. Lord, would you quit looking and find us here desiring that to fix our marriages and our lives and our attitudes and our relationships, our church, our laziness, our indifference. Would you fix it, Lord? We don't want to serve ourselves. We want to serve you. So I ask you to fix us and deal with us. Or as a man said a hundred years ago, bend us, O Lord. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Stand to your feet. Never hope.